There's so much uncertainty about the upcoming Major League Baseball season, not least of which is whether or not there will be one. But I'm going to highlight one that I don't hear very many people discussing, and it's a very, very real uncertainty that I don't think is going to get addressed. Good morning to you. Good Monday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of TK Pittsburgh Sports. This is Daily Shot of Pirates. Comes your way bright and early every weekday if you're into football and or hockey. I also offer up Daily Shots of Steelers and Penguins where you found this. Who's on first is the old Abbott and Costello line from a zillion years ago. And there's no apparent answer to that for this coming season for the Pirates. But I'll tell you what. They, the Pirates, must know. Because there's no other way you cut Colin Moran loose. Just let him go. Don't pay him, send him on his way. And then on top of that, when it happened, or shortly after it happened, Ben Charrington made a comment to the effect of, you always leave the door open, dot, 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 which was not quite kicking Moran out the door, but it was not far from it either. He's not coming back. So they know something, and they haven't shared that. Part of the reason, I'm going to guess, is that, well, amid the labor uncertainty, it's also not official yet that there will be a designated hitter in the National League. That's being used as a bargaining chip. Most people do expect there will be a DH, and if there is, of course, the signing of Yoshi Tsutsugo goes into the DH category. You would not put Yoshi at first base if you did not have to. You would not put Yoshi anywhere in the field if you did not have to. He's a hitter, pure and simple. He's actually a classic DH in a lot of ways, not just because he can't defend the way a lot of people misperceive that role to be, but because he he's a big bat coming out of your dugout four times a game. That's going to make the Pirates feel like a better offensive team in 2022 on that count alone. Just not having to deal with the pitcher. And yes, I understand it applies to all 30 teams. I'm just talking about how it feels from the home perspective. Because you're going to be able to put Yoshi right there in the middle of the order. If there isn't a DH, and again, I'm not expecting that, then Yoshi's going to be your first baseman because we also saw what he looks like in the outfield. And it's quite an adventure. Now, advanced analytics will make a powerful and compelling case. And it really doesn't matter where you play the bat. Yes, you still want to have the best defensive team that you can. But I'll remind that the Pirates were... One of, if not the, best defensive team in terms of being shorthanded anyway last season. And all that did was keep them from losing even more than 101 games. Yoshi's going to play regardless. And if he does, and if there's no DH, it's going to be at first base. And now that I've bought you three minutes and 41 seconds of talking time, to try to think on your own who would actually be the first baseman. I'll bet you still don't have the answer, do you? This portion of Daily Shot of Pirates is brought to you by our friends at North Shore Tavern that's directly across Federal Street from PNC Park. It's home of Steak on a Stone. 
an eating experience, underscoring the word experience. The steak is brought to you partially cooked on an 800-degree stone, and you do the rest. It's a ton of fun, it's a great meal, and it's a baseball atmosphere like no other in Pittsburgh. North Shore Tavern, right across Federal Street from PNC Park. Lots of things have changed throughout baseball history. One that hasn't is that you put power bats at the corner positions. Kind of a no-brainer if you think about it. Because you're putting players who are bigger, stronger, and in all likelihood, less mobile, less athletic at left field, right field, third base, first base. However, however, there are exceptions to this, and there can continue to be even more exceptions to this. If you look at Kebrian Hayes, your first thought, just upon seeing him, the human, isn't to think that he's a third baseman, but he's always been one. Why? Well... You know, his dad, Charlie Hayes, of course, was a third baseman in the majors. Charlie was going to be best equipped to teach that position to him, but it's not like Key lacks the range or the dexterity to play middle infield spots. Just where he got brought up, and he's obviously so, so good over there that you'd never move him off of that once he's set. Left field at PNC Park, specifically, as we've seen over the years, is a position that can really challenge people. And you can't, not even for a day, put your slow-footed, big, lumbering guy over there. They'll get exposed. And they won't just get exposed on balls hit to the notch. They'll get exposed on everything. There's a lot of ground to cover over there. And it's an unusual configuration, which means you're going to run bad routes even when you think you're running good routes. I've heard this from far too many people for it to not be true. You have to have a left fielder that profiles more like if you go back to the early version of Jason Bay, where, yeah, you got some pop, you got some power, but you also can get around and you're also smart enough to figure out how to make it work there and communicating with your center fielder and all that other stuff. But profiling the first base position doesn't work for the Pirates just because of personnel. Now, nothing's to stop them from going out and getting a free agent to play first base. Cue laughter. Okay, stop laughing now. If they were to get someone like that, that would answer things. Maybe they had, past tense, someone in mind at the time that they let Moran walk. But let's presume, as is usually safe, that they're not going to spend any additional money and that they're going to go with the people that they have. I see the entire right side of the Pirates infield as unsettled. I see that with second base. I see that with first base. At second, you've got any number of candidates, whether it's Kevin Newman, Hoy Park, Michael Chavis, Cole Tucker. And at first base, you've got Wah, wah. There's nothing. There's nothing. Go ahead. Pick someone off the roster. Put them there. Who? Yeah, exactly. So what you could do, the way you could think about it, per what I said earlier about the bat's going to be playing, is that you can say, all right, well, listen, we can try Tucker at second or Newman at second. Newman's actually played a lot of second. 
and this is putting O'Neill Cruz at short, obviously, which I don't know is a done deal. It should be a done deal. Newman, I think, is going to get traded. But if you have, then again, I thought that last year too. But if you have those four candidates over there and you say to yourself, listen, I'm going to put the best glove at second base. And if Newman's still here, that'll be Newman. You could make an argument in Tucker's favor uh, over the long term, maybe. Then you'll take Chavis, who's a, a solid bat. He's still got potential for a guy who's 27 years old and has spent a little bit of time in the majors. We've seen the bat play. Uh, he's got some significant pop. I, I, again, I, I say that I'm not talking about him as if he's Vlad Jr. <laughs> I'm talking about him within the relative context of what's there. Problem is, even though Chavis has played first base in his career, he's 5'10". And it's not typecasting to say that you don't want a 5'10 first baseman. You want somebody who can get up and reach those high throws. And he's not it. You know who is? Don't laugh this off. Tucker. Tucker's not just skinny and a rail. He's also 6'3". And Tucker can play any position. Now, he doesn't have a history at first base. But Tucker is one of those kids you could roll out of bed if you're him and just learn a position by the end of the day. I really believe that. In addition to his being super smart, he's also super athletic and everything else. Now, does that get wasted at the first base position? I guess you could make that argument. The stronger argument is that do you want a first baseman who, until the last month of the season, couldn't hit anything even past the pitcher's mound? Do you want to believe in him? Do you want to go with defense there? Do you want to go with the gloved? Do you want to try to make your infield like all gold glove caliber across the board and say heck with it as far as offense goes? Uh, you know, these are these are tough calls because it's a bad situation. You know, it's not one of those classic like, oh, we've got tough decisions because we got so many great candidates. It's the exact opposite. The right side of the infield for the Pittsburgh Pirates is a great big unknown. And I strongly suspect it'll remain that right up until the first pitch of the season. When we come back, just one question. Welcome back. It's time for J1Q, and today's comes from Mike Zappler, who asks, I listened to your episode Friday about why you're encouraged that the owners appear willing, at least for now, to stonewall and delay in order to get a salary cap slash floor in place. What I don't understand is why players wouldn't want such a system. I can see why a handful of superstars might think it would rein in the Tatis-type contracts, but wouldn't the overwhelming majority of players benefit for minimum spending levels across the league. Yes, Mike, they would. Um, that's not an opinion on my part. That is an easily verifiable fact. Just as it's easily verifiable that middle-class free agents in baseball have seen their contracts plunge for six years in a row, Every single year, 
that class, meaning the guys that aren't the Bryce Harpers and so forth, their figures have gone down. And as a result, so have player salaries overall. Why? As you suggest yourself, there's a lot more of them than there are of the Tatis types. I believe that if the players were ever shown a model in which it could be illustrated clearly, concisely, and convincingly that their salaries in an entire middle class would go up, that they'd be in favor of a cap-type system. From there, the easiest thing to do from the owner's standpoint would be to raise the salaries of the zero to three players, as they're known, meaning guys who are in their first three years in the majors just get stamped. There's just a number that's assigned to them by the teams, and it can be anything above, I believe the figure for last year was 550. I apologize if I'm wrong on that one, or 575 or something like that, 575,000, whatever it is. But it's it's not great considering you've made it to the top of your sport. And if you're someone in particular, like a Brian Reynolds, who becomes arguably one of the top 10 or 15 hitters in baseball, and you're still being stamped around that figure, that's not unique to the Pirates. That's all 30 teams do that. Then you can see where the system kind of hoses you. So if you're the owners and you want to make a case and you say, listen, We'll take the minimum wage. We'll make it a million and a half a year. We'll more than double it if you go along with this system. And we'll in turn put in this cap type system and you'll see the middle class figures go up and actually so will player salaries. Now, the counter that I hear to that occasionally when I bring that up is why would the owners go for that? Why would they go for a system in which they'll clearly have to pay the players more than they are. And the answer to that, as has been proven in other labor situations, is simple. It's cost certainty. It's cost certainty. They protect themselves against really, really weird spikes and pitfalls and against themselves, really. At the time of the NHL lockout in 2004, you had a handful of teams that were leery of this, and they're exactly where you would have expected. Uh, in the bigger, richer markets like New York, Toronto, Montreal, Detroit. And they were like, well, hang on a second. We're kind of comfortable with this system. This allows us to spend whatever it is that we want and keep a you know, highly competitive product on the ice. But once they saw the safeguards that were put in, that the cap-type system puts in, as well as the collective component to it, where the owners and players have everything to gain mutually by growing the game, as hokey as that sounds, as kumbaya as that'll come across, it's a real thing. The bigger the revenue pie in a salary cap sport, the more money there is for everybody, and it's a fixed percentage. And it's never being dictated by just a handful of out-of-this-world players. It gets spread 
across the game. Now, I'm going to repeat here that I'm not expecting this, okay? And I, I get a little cringy myself when I start talking about it on this show in terms that sound that real world. I don't expect this. I don't expect this even if the owners like completely shut down the game for a year and a half. I still think it would be a bloodbath for them to come back to a system that would be as hardcore as the ones they have in various forms in the NFL, NHL, and NBA. But I really, really believe, as naive as this will sound, that the players could very, very easily be sold on this system. Why aren't they? Why can't they be? To go back to your original question, that one's really easy because Scott Boris doesn't want it. Scott Boris represents the players at the very top of that spectrum, and he has this deep-seated philosophical belief that he has sold to his players who control the players' union's executive council, and that is the end of that. I appreciate the question. I appreciate everybody listening to Daily Shot of Pirates. We'll do another one tomorrow.